Welcome to City Speak with Max Masuda Farkas. In the final episode of season one, we sit down with architect Eric Owen Moss, principal and lead designer of Eric Owen Moss Architects. For anyone who has driven past Culver City's Hayden Track neighborhood, it will be hard to miss the large cluster of experimental buildings that have become the signature of Moss's work. Today we cover everything from Vietnam protests during architecture school to his skepticism towards, as he calls it, the environmental do-gooders of architecture. Stay tuned. CitySpeak is proudly sponsored by Batoni Architects. Batoni Architects is committed to their mission of improving the built urban environment by offering unique architectural solutions to support their clients' needs. You can explore their projects at bitoniarchitects.com. CitySpeak is also sponsored by Lexagon. Lexagon is a Paris-based architectural visualization studio with its U.S. office located in Los Angeles, specializing in 3D renderings and animations. Lexagon, pretty pictures, nice colors, and damn good renders. Eric, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Honor and a privilege. <laughs> uh, well, I'd like to start from the very beginning. Growing up in Los Angeles in the 40s and 50s amid the post-war housing boom, I can only imagine that in some way this must have influenced your work as an architect and as an L.A. architect, no less. Can you paint a picture for us of this early vision of L.A. and maybe how it may or may not have influenced your direction in architecture as a young man? I I mean, I would say that's a fairly standard question because you're making an association somebody's here, lives here, grows up here, and is influenced by what's here. I actually never felt like that. And, And I have to say that I don't know that I ever felt that I was an American never mind an Angelino. So the the issue of, are you from LA, are you an American, I think meant relatively little to me. I'm, I always thought of this kind of stuff in an existential way, it's just sort of an accident. So you could have been born in Singapore and you could have shown up in Lisbon and you could have been in Kazakhstan and you happen to be in LA. I think also because my mom and dad were connected with the East Coast, I always had or felt an affinity for New York. I guess the other cartoon related to Los Angeles is its, is its intrinsic innocuousness, that it doesn't define a hell of a lot. It's not like, gee, you're, I'm, we're doing this building, it's next to Raphael's Palazzo, we better watch out or something. I, I do think, I'm not even sure it's fair entirely to say that, that Los Angeles is, is not definitive in terms of it's something to react to, but as cities go, it probably is open enough and free enough. And what that means, actually, is it obligates, at least potentially, an architect because... Rafael's Palazzo is not there. So if nothing's there, you're the guy who puts it there for the next guy to react to, which means the the onus or the obligation or the responsibility to provide the definition belongs essentially to this time and this generation. 
and then other people can come along and respond to it as opposed to a pedigree or an antecedent or a history that people are responding to and and obligates you to be attentive to whatever the sort of prehistory is. I don't want to circle back to something you spoke about in the beginning, which is your ambivalence to maybe affix yourself to category of American architect or LA architect. Um, and it's something you've talked about quite often in the past, particularly as you were initially making your venture into architecture as a student. And the era in which you were a student in architecture school was tumultuous, to say the least, with the culture wars happening in the 60s. Uh, and I know that you've talked about how it was actually instrumental in the formation of your architectural practice and philosophy. Are there any anecdotes that maybe stand out in your mind? I think I hid it. I think I buried it for a long time, didn't talk about it. And uh, listening to characters who were throwing bricks in Harvard Yard, parading down Market Street in San Francisco, hanging out at Berkeley, Yale's involved, Wisconsin, you know, all of that late 60s, early 70s and people claiming it defined them, and it was this, and it was that. I think I was interested, at least in the time I was at Cal, in trying to understand what was possible and what I could be affiliated with, or belong to, or support, or the opposite. And there was a lot of noise there, and there were a lot of strong opinions. I mean, everybody from from the Jefferson Airplane and Bob Dylan and Jimi Hendrix eating guitars and all that stuff. But it was also a time McCarthy shows up, Martin Luther King shows up, Bobby Kennedy shows up. So that place had a particular role in, I think, American, I don't know if it's culture, what that, what that term means, but... but developing opinions. And I, I remember uh, 300,000 people parading down Market Street with signs that Lyndon Johnson, who was the president at the time, when the Vietnam stuff was going on, and Lyndon Johnson was Hitler. And, and a lot of this sort of extreme stuff, which galvanizes lots of kids and, and everybody sort of yells and you're... God and saintly and they're the devil. But I was looking at that and even if I agreed or disagreed with whatever I thought Vietnam meant, I wasn't prepared to say personally that Lyndon Johnson was Hitler because he wasn't. So I think gradually it became clear that in the end the obligation is yours to try to see it, to try to say what it means to try to say what its constituent parts are, to acknowledge contradictions. And in a sense, the truth is a tension between possibilities. It's not something you sign up for. So I hear what you're saying, that as a student, you were looking for something to belong to, as you put it, both in terms of your general belief system and you know, as an architect. Do you feel now that you are able to form any you know, concrete theories or ideologies or methodologies as an architect since your early days as a young architect? I've talked about this in different ways for a long time. When we first started working with Rizzoli, I had something called the Penelope theory of architecture. 
and that's bounced around a little bit. Penelope was Odysseus' wife, and I don't know if you guys know that. Sometimes you're just talking to the audience and nobody looks at that stuff anymore. They will again. But but Laertes was Odysseus' dad, and Odysseus was wandering around and getting into mischief. And Penelope has all these guys hanging out in the dining room saying, let's marry one of us. Okay, as soon as I finish the shroud, which she is knitting during the day and taking apart at night. And to knit it during the day and to take it apart at night became the argument or the hypothesis. So that's the Penelope theory. And I think, I think we're still doing that. I think generally architecture is most persuasive when it's uncertain because it's moving somewhere that that doesn't exist a priori. And so it has, I mean, the word is everybody wants to be outside the box. Everybody wants to be experimental. My response to that was outside the box, there's another box. I assume that when you say outside the box, you mean that mainly in, in reference to the formal aspects of architecture. What about the other elements, whether it's the civic elements or environmental or economic? I was looking at, at something with Wolf the other day and they're making this surface, this environmental surface. And nominally, this is done so that the skin of the building can respond as the climate and weather changes. It's disingenuous as hell, only in the sense that we understand that that a triple glazed building has relatively little to do with dealing with environmental questions, which for me belong to the Saudis or the Emirates or the idiots that are running the American government, the fossil fuel discussion. It, it doesn't belong to, it's fine for architecture to be, to, to have that sensibility. That doesn't make the architecture great, but the, the, the issue of solving those problems and the technical language related to it, there's, there's, there's a, a level of dishonesty and maybe it's necessary in doing those things as a kind of environmental do-gooder like making affordable housing, which automatically makes you, in, in many circles at the moment, an important architect. I don't think it does. I mean, I think those are social and political and economic considerations, and they're part of a story. But that, that didn't make, you know, the, the crossing at Notre Dame. Didn't, didn't do that, um, whether you like Ville Le Duc or not. Seeing as you're so almost resistant to categorize yourself and your work as one thing or another, I'm curious to know whether you have the same resistance to label architects who are your peers, or even those of the last century, you know, many of whom have been labeled and named for a long time by both historians and critics. So are you as resistant to categorize other architects as you are about yourself? Conceptual architecture is about stealing. I think it's interesting to see that, archi that architecture as, as an operational principle in the last hundred years has spent its time affiliating itself with what it considers to be progressive movements in the arts and sciences and saying, we're that. 
we're that. You want to know who I am? I'm a cubist. I'm an assembly line. I'm a metabolist. I'm a deconstructivist. All of those things. And it's interesting that all of those movements and all of that nomenclature originate outside of architecture. And then architecture gloms onto that and teaches the students to be that. Uh, I'd like to change the pace a bit and talk a bit about um, your really interesting relationship with the couple you would meet in 1986 who had helped to not only really put your work on the map, but I think actually put the very Hayden tract literally on the map, mm. which has now, of course, become something of your own personal large-scale art gallery in a way. Right. And so Frederick and Laurie Samantar Smith were the artist and dancer couple turned real estate developers. And that story of how you met them uh, and how your relationship blossomed over you know three decades. It's still going. And still, and In fact, some of the stuff which we're not ready to talk about, but there's some huge stuff now. When I first started, you were talking about L.A. When I first started working, I went to see Eames, and, and not out of enormous adulation, but out of respect. And, and one of the things that he did in his practice, and it had to do with working with Herman Miller at the time, so he had this kind of core of financial, intellectual constituency, really, in Herman Miller's support, and it allowed him to do a lot of other things and to formulate a kind of way of thinking and working. The thing with, with uh, Laurie and Frederick, uh, they're exceptional. And there's, it's a productive relationship. It's a tense relationship in some ways because they're very opinionated. And they're unusual. The, what's, what's particularly unusual is they own a lot of land. It's not only Culver City. It's in L.A. And the bigger stuff now is going to L.A. And owning contiguous pieces of property and holding all of it, not buying, developing, leasing, selling as a kind of, you know, we sell, we sell vacuum cleaners door to door or something. They're not doing that. So they have a different stake. It's a much more durable stake in the meaning and the content of architecture. If it wasn't clear already, uh, in addition to your architectural practice, you are very clearly a man of letters, having published throughout your career several books in tandem with your practice. I want to look at one of those in particular. In 1999, you published a book uh, called Gnostic Architecture. Uh, I want to zero in on this because I think it really gets at the heart of sort of the underlying theories and philosophies that really animate your work. My question is twofold. Firstly, can you explain, maybe in as lay terms as possible, who the Gnostics were, what Gnosticism is? Uh, and then in, in turn, can you then describe maybe how you came to apply this as a theory of architecture and maybe what that theory is as you describe it in your book? The terminology of Gnosticism, so years ago, my dad sent me, I don't know, it was a New York review. There's a lady called Elaine Pagels. So she was at Princeton. She started to dig into this. So they, they found the Gospel of Thomas. And my dad had published some stuff related to these. He's a poet. And so somehow the discussion of the Gnostics in the early Christian era, 
started to interest me. The Catholic Church was terrified that this stuff would be released, the Gospels, because they were afraid that their story would be contradicted. In some ways it is, you know, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John story would be, would be contradicted. None of that was really my point. I think my point was, was just that the definition of religion and the meaning of religion, not in an institutional way, not in a way that the institution of the Catholic Church grew up over uh, millennia, actually, to define what you should do as a Catholic and what you do, what's what's what you're to believe and what you're to say and how you're to behave in in political terms, in personal terms, and all of that stuff. But the Gnostics seem to be people looking at these subjects and insisting that whatever determination is made belongs to you so that you can't walk away from the responsibility and say Pius the 12th Hitler's Pope as an interesting book that that the pope told me that the church told me or anybody else told me this is the way it works kid Gnosticism, to me, suggests not that there is no answer. There perpetually might be an answer. As a Gnostic, you might figure it out. You might solve it. You might come to understand it. But it could only be known from one person to another. And so Gnostic architecture suggests that it's an investigation that goes on in perpetuity, but it might come to points of insight or understanding or comprehension or resolution, and then it all dissolves, and then you try again. The association with these unusual people who were adversaries and who were written out of the Christian story and written out of the text and these people were written out for hundreds of years. They're still on the margin, but they have a role. And those people interested me. But it's a way of thinking and working and understanding. And, and it's been useful to me as, as a way of trying to, to find means to, to describe what we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, I'd love to, um, to return to the relationship you've had with the Smith Samatars, Samatar Smith, excuse me, uh, and just t- kind of taking stock over the immense transformation that has taken place um, with you at the helm in this neighborhood. Um, I'd love to read a quick passage actually from the late New York Times critic, uh, Herbert Mushamp. When he first visited the Samatar building, which is now iconic, uh, he wrote the following passage. And this was written, by the way, in the 90s. Right. From the roof of the Samatar building, most recent project by this brilliant 52-year-old Los Angeles architect, you can spot Fedco and other stores in the South Central section that were looted during the 1992 riots after the verdict in the Rodney King beating. Then, plumes of smoke curled toward the sky as dust crept over the city, and across the country, people were glued to their television screens, trying to figure out what was going on. Mushant later questions your vision for the Hayden Tract's future and wonders whether it's, quote, just another architect's wild utopian dream, though he himself, of course, didn't think it was just that. 
when you look around today, I think it's more than evident that this vision was actually very right back then. So what is the vision you have today that 30 years from now we will come to look back on similarly? You know, Trotsky had this theory of permanent revolution and they did it with Mao. I don't know if you know that. It's called The Great Leap Forward, but it's an interesting piece of, of history in China. But it had to do with what Trotsky's discussion is like, take it apart, take it apart, take it apart. It's hard to run a country that way. It's hard to run a life that way. I think that's the premise of this place, permanent revolution. As long as I have the capacity and the energy and the Smiths are involved, I'm prepared to say it's possible to continue both to make it and to take it down. And as long as we're we're in the process of doing that, and we still are. You're, you're making something and taking it down because you're skeptical of the durability. You don't want it to be permanent. You don't want it to be famous. You don't want it to be a doctrine. You don't want followers. And, and I don't know if you can actually live that way. We have a we have a big master plan. Sorkin's doing a book on it. It's for Nanjing. It's 26 kilometers by 26. And it's called, the, and, and the, the, the written piece is called the Nanjing Charter. And it's, it's a response to the Athens Charter. I don't know if you know the Athens Charter, but the Athens Charter in the 20s, the Corbusier, Siegfried, Gideon, and this is the way to do architecture, function, workplace. It's, it's in an intellectual way, it's, 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 it's pretty vacuous stuff, but it had enormous consequences for the planning of, of, of cities, not only American cities, but cities around the world. I would like to see this, whether it manifests itself in Nanjing or in, or in South Central LA or in the Hayden Track, serve as a kind of model for, for discourse about what the model is and how it, how it should continue to be a critical discussion. Eric Owen Moss, thanks for joining us. Thanks for tuning in to the final episode of City Speak Season 1. City Speak is produced in partnership with Urbanized Media with music and audio production by Greg Gordon-Smith.